The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 8. The word of God speaks to us like this. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. This is the word of God to us. Good morning, church. You're doing okay? It's good to see you guys today. It's a privilege to be with you and to sing with you, man, and uh, to open up a passage on lawsuits in the church. <laughs> it's an amazing thing today. I know you were like, you know what I need to talk about today? I need to talk about litigation in the church. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. Um, and uh, hey, listen, I'm excited about this passage and excited about what God's going to unfold for us today. But um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Chad. I serve as one of our pastors here, teaching pastor here downtown. And um, I get to open God's word with you most weeks. Typically, if, uh, if, you're, if you're new with us, typically you'll be uh, hearing from either our pastor, lead pastor and founding pastor, Josh Curry, or I in the pulpit. And we kind of work through books of the Bible. We're now in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you have a Bible, turn to the passage that we just opened, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to open this passage in just a minute. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, we have some in the window seals here down on the bottom floor, and that would be our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word uh, to have. And uh, so as we open up this passage, if you would please pray for me, uh, and I'll pray for you, and um, I look forward to seeing how, again, God would shape us by this text. Our Father, this morning we have sang about Jesus being a a firm foundation. And Jesus, we want to say now in a prayer that we agree with what we've saying today, that you really are a firm foundation. You're the safest place we can build our life. You're the most sure place we can build our life. And when we come before your word today, God, we ask that this would be the place where you would help us by the power of the Spirit to build a life build a life that would be formed around Jesus, build a life that would be submitted to Jesus, the safest place for us to think about ourselves, the safest place for us to think about our relationships, the safest place for us to think about the world is by your word. And so would you help us think that way today? Would you engage our hearts along with our minds? And for the various places that we need to be addressed in the room today because of what we're bringing in that this sermon is limited and unable to address. I believe in the mystery of preaching, Holy Spirit, that you're able to meet us and to engage us in all the various places we need to be met even when we might be limited in some ways. And so we now wanna open wide our mouths and ask that you would fill us. We wanna open up our minds and our hearts and ask that you would shape us. And we do this in the strong name of Jesus, believing your ministry is here present with us by your word. And all the church together said, amen, amen. 
You might remember a couple of weeks ago, if you're with us, that um, Pastor Josh opened his sermon by just talking about some deep burdens he has for our church in these days. Some, some deep burdens that have come back to some stuff that we've said for a number of years about being a church for the city. Uh, a church that's for the good of our city. And what, what he talked about a couple of weeks ago, and he named then, and it's something that our, all of our elders are taking up in these days, praying into, is that God would use us, God would use our church in these days, not just by means of activism or by action in the city, by doing good to the poor and the marginalized, although that's stuff we want to do and that we're gonna continue to do and how God would use us, but that, that God would use us not just by activism, but by transformed lives, by both proclamation and demonstration, that there would be a testimony from our community, from our gathered times together on Sundays, and our scattered lives lived between Sundays across the city, a testimony to our city about the power of God, that we're not just making up stuff about him in our lives as we gather on Sundays from his word, that there's something of power, there's something of his reign, his kingdom. Maybe another way to say it is that there'd be an evidence of God's graces, an evidence of God's work on us to such an extent by changed lives that we would be like signposts to our city. That we would be like signposts to the city that say, if you wanna know what the reign of Jesus is like, look at what he's doing among us. Look at how he's putting stuff that was broken back together. Look at how he was putting individuals who were fractured now healed and restored. Look at relationships that we thought were lost now back together, standing side by side, singing the same songs and doing so with joy. Look at the kind of people who we thought were beyond the grace of God, but not only has the grace of God met them, it's changed them and they're no longer recognizable for who they once were. That's the kind of evidences of grace for the, a church for the city that we're, that we're talking about. And so as he named those burdens a couple of weeks ago, it's, been, it's got me thinking because that's actually, that's actually the burden of this book, the book of 1 Corinthians. Those burdens are the burdens of this book. We're gonna take up a lot of topics throughout the study of this book and we're doing so again today with a topic like lawsuits in the church. But the reason that Paul's writing about the various things that he wrote to this church and that we're reading in, looking in on, the reason is, is because in their day, the church was no longer distinguishable from the world. It wasn't a church for the city like it was intended to be. It had become a church swallowed by the city. And so Paul's writing to say, there's a burden here that you would be for your city, not of your city, not swallowed by your city, but there'd be a testimony of the power and the kingdom of God coming from you to the city, a city of God, as it were. And so as I've been thinking about this and I've been processing this, two questions have become really helpful for me. I just wanna invite you into my own thought process and maybe it'd provoke your own. A couple of ways to think about this is to ask a simple question with obvious answers. What does it mean to be the church in the city? What does it mean to be the church in the city? The answers are obvious enough that the city becomes our city, Oklahoma City, becomes the place where we carry out our discipleship to Jesus. That's part of what it means to be the church in the city, that this is the place we follow Jesus. This is the place where we learn to have our lives shaped by Jesus, that our neighborhoods and workplaces and streets and coffee shops are the places where we learn to bear witness to Jesus. We take up residence here in this city and we learn to be good neighbors on our block. 
This is the place where we will fail and we'll learn to repent and seek reconciliation and restoration. That's part of what it means to be the church in our city. The second question, though, is like the first question, only flipped, and it points more to our mission and even responsibility as God's people. Here's the second question. What does it mean for the city to have the church? What does it mean for the city to have the church? So where the first question is primarily concerned with us, what does it mean to be the church in the city? The second question is primarily concerned with the city. What, is it, what does it mean for Oklahoma City that God in his sovereign grace has chosen that his message would go out in the midst of it? What does it mean for the city that God has chosen for his message to be heard here? Well, part of what it means is that the city ought to see something of the life and ministry of Jesus. The, the scriptures say that we're the body of Christ. So this city ought to see something of Christ still doing ministry in this place because we're in it. It means that this city will have a witness to the kingdom of God, what it's like, how it's different than the city, and an invitation to belong to it and to participate with us. It means that the city, the city because we're here, because the message of the gospel's gone out, ought to see what kind of father God is, and they would see what kind of father he is by the kind of family he's building. That's part of what it means for the city to have the church. Maybe one more. The city ought to see something of God's authority, authority that's hated in our day, but they ought to see something of God's authority that it's not about oppression, but it's actually about flourishing. It's about restoration. That's part of what it means for the city to have the church. You you could ask this question, frankly, on a personal level. What does it mean for you to be a Christian in your neighborhood? But then the other question, what does it mean for your neighborhood that you live in it? Does your neighborhood know or care that you're a Christian and that you live there, right? You could ask this on a church level, on a personal level, but I cue up the sermon this morning because these questions are gonna help us get to the heart of both the why and the what of Paul's concern in our passage today. So we're gonna take three turns as we navigate this passage. Conflict in the church, and then he unravels the conflict with eternity, And then finally, he gives us a way of reconciliation. Conflict in the church, unraveling conflict with eternity, and then the way of reconciliation. Let's jump into the first, verse one. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so this passage begins with the same kind of sober tone, if you were with us last week, the same kind of sober tone from chapter five now carries into verse one into chapter six. The last chapter was a rebuke. If you were here last week, it wasn't a lightweight sermon. (laughs) Church discipline, chipper topic. It was a rebuke about the ways that the church was tolerating sin and neglecting the call to grow in holiness. And now he begins this chapter, chapter six, with these words, how dare you? He, he continues the rebuke into this chapter. How dare he go before the law? In the context, the context that um, best sort of tells us um, of what's happening here is that the church had a pattern that had been developed over time where they were going to court over small and petty issues to solve issues against one another. And so based on what we've covered this far in the book, 
and learned about this church through five chapters, it's not difficult to see how they got to where they got. So far we've learned that this is a people that's so captured by pride and prestige that they would rather divide over their preferences on preachers than have any unity formed around a crucified Messiah. This was a people that were so licentious in their manner of life that they'd rather boast about their sexual liberties and boast about their sexual tolerances than carefully deal with the tragic sin in their midst. And now here in this passage, this is a people that's so consumed by their legal rights and what belonged to them, so consumed with winning arguments and seen as superior, that they'd rather be justified in the court of law than deal with any kind of love and forgiveness with each other. And the context of where this is playing out is actually quite fascinating. In Corinth, like any good Greek city, they loved rhetoric. They loved eloquent speech. It was all about who could say it best. And so you just play this out in court, and court in their day was like theater. Litigation was amusement. It was entertainment. It was out in front of everybody. And so there was this adrenaline of winning an argument and getting to do so publicly. There was this prize that you would get if you were to be vindicated and everyone was watching, I'm right. But there was also this delight on the loser of the argument and the shame that they would bear. And so cases would be heard and cases would be judged in the center of the city. Think about Judge Judy live from Scissortail Park. That, that's what's happening here. You might go grab some tacos from Social Capital and then walk across the street and catch some litigation over lunch before you head back to the office. That was manner of life in Corinth. That's how they would do it. It was the thrill maybe of having your case to be heard and to be the center of attention or it was just the thrill of watching someone else's drama play out for your pleasure. Get your popcorn ready because we're doing trial in Corinth. Now what's interesting is this actually starts to sound, the more you think about it, it starts to sound like an ancient form of what social media has turned into today. This was the practice of the city. This was the practice of Corinth. This was just Tuesday in Corinth. And what's amazing about it is the church had become caught up in it all the same. And so this is why Paul says, how dare you to start this passage? It's because the church had the issue of judgment flipped around. The church had the issue of judgment upside down. If you remember last chapter, they refused to judge one another in these ways of grace and patience. They refused to judge one another, call out sin in one another in order to keep the church and preserve the church in holiness. They refused to judge one another and yet they're handing one another over to the world to be judged. How dare you? They're giving their problems with one another in the church over to those outside of the church to be handled by them. Would you, world, please handle our problems? So pick up in verse four with me. He says, if you have such cases, then why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He says, I actually say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one wise enough among you to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brothers go to law against brother and you do that in front of unbelievers. So Paul gets actually a bit spicy here. Some, co some commentators would say this is the most sarcastic he gets in all of his writings. All the conversation to this point, if you've been with us, has been about their love for wisdom. 
and about their claim to be worldly wise and intellectually superior. And so Paul says, hey, if you wanna claim that, now I'm gonna throw that back on you. Are you actually gonna tell me for all your love for wisdom that there's no one wise enough among you to settle some petty arguments? He throws a sarcastic jab at them. So let me draw some clarity here as to what this verse is talking about and what it's not talking about. These verses aren't suggesting, as some have taken them to be interpreted, that Christians should never go to court. It's not saying that. It's not saying that Christians should only handle their legal matters in-house. Some have actually taken it to mean that. It's not suggesting that. There are other places in the New Testament where Paul writes about the rightful place of governing authorities and judicial processes, and they're good for restraining evil in the world. This also is not talking about criminal cases or cases of abuse that ought to be reported, that must be reported and handled judicially. Right? It's not talking about those kinds of cases. This passage is also not talking about church cover-ups, as though we can't let the world know what's happening in here. It's as if to protect our reputation. It's not talking about church cover-ups. It's not talking about silencing victims who would otherwise out the church and tear down our reputation. It's not talking about that. We want everyone to have a voice even when wrongs have been done against you. Verse two tells us what this passage is about. Verse two says this is about, quote, trivial cases. And in trivial cases between Christians, Christian against Christian, petty church fights. Verse three, he says that this is about, quote, matters pertaining to this life. So another way of saying this would be everyday affairs. This is about everyday stuff. This is about a billing issue with a plumber. This is about a late payment. This is about a, f- a felt lack of care during a hard time in your life with your community group and you have something against someone. This is about something that was stolen or borrowed. <laughs> I, I borrowed it. Well, yeah, but you never returned it. You stole it, right? This is about that kind of stuff. And so Paul says, are you guys telling me with those kinds of issues, a billing issue with your plumber for crying out loud, Christian homeowner, Christian plumber, and you're gonna fight about this and take it to court. Are you telling me that there's no one wise enough among you to settle these small disputes, but brother goes to law against brother and you do that before unbelievers? We can handle this, surely. And so it's interesting, right? You're hearing all this and you're going, well, that's great for Corinth. They were crazy. Church gone wild. And we may not do this in the same way that they were, but that's only because our systems are different now. But, but the ugly is all the same. Because you and me do this very same thing in the form, as I mentioned earlier, of gossip and social media. We do the same stuff. And we're happy, right? We're happy to show up on social media and like at a business, <laughs> you know, at Southwest Airlines, you're awful, you know, or Delta or American, or choose your adventure. We're happy to blast people. We're happy to blast businesses. We're happy to blast politicians with all eyes watching just so we can be proven right, so people can add into the comment thread and tell us that we're right. Yeah, me too, they are awful. And so in this way, just like the Corinthian Christians then, we give one another over to public opinion. We let the world judge. And here's what's interesting about this, right? Now, it's not a newsflash. 
the world loves to see Christians fail. The world loves it. The world loves to see Christians fail. It did then, and it still loves it today. So here's what the world's left with. Look at these people over here. (laughs) They can't even handle their issues among one another, and very often their issues among one another are worse than our issues with non-Christians. So who cares about their God? They're failing all the time. And they're participating in blasting just like we are. They'll blast politicians, they'll blast one another, they'll blast businesses, we all blast. Let's just comment on the thread and like it. Now it's also interesting, lean in here with me, it's not just that Christians, or the world loves to see Christians fail, we're in a unique moment where Christians love to see Christians fail, aren't we? We're consuming Christian failure just as rampantly as the world is. Think about popular podcasts, posts, and headlines about a fallen Christian leader. And we love to consume it like candy. We can't wait for the next episode to drop. All in the name, and we do this all in the name of, yeah, I'm gonna bring justice, and I'm gonna share this with other people so I can protect them from these kinds of things happening. And I'm gonna make sure that this person gets what's coming to them as though it's your job to discipline. But often here's what's happening. When Christians consume Christian failure and share it, the unintended unintended consequence, even though it has this guise of good, the unintended consequence is we're actually slandering one another. We have this self-righteous judgment, well I would never do that stuff. And we cultivate this spirit where we consume that kind of news with excitement and intrigue, but we have no real desire for redemption for that person, and we have no real burdens for how we might be a redemptive person in the world. We're just consuming the latest dirt on the latest failed leader, and we're happy about it. Never mind the people who are actually suffering because of those failures. And so you see, right, like now what was all about them actually is more about us than we thought. And when we play by the world's rules, when we play by the world's rules with gossip, and we blast on social media just so that we can be proven right and win the approval of some, yeah, go get them. When we do this, we end up damaging the church. We damage the witness of the church the testimony of the church, and we leave the world with like, well listen, if this is the quality of the people in there, and this is what their community is like, then does their savior have any power to save at all? Look at these people. Who would wanna be a part of a community like that? We can do that out here. We don't need a a God to worship to blast. When we play by the world's rules, we malign people, listen, this is crazy, we malign people who in many cases are Christians also. (laughs) We malign people who are Christians who, by the way, are covered by the same blood of Jesus that it took to cover you. As though you didn't need the blood that they needed. They needed a lot of it, I just needed kind of a couple ounces. Come on, man. See, here's the thing, Paul could just tell this group, stop. He could just tell them, he could just start with the, how dare you, right? He could just tell them, would you please stop doing this? The reasons are obvious enough. You're hurting each other. You're hurting your witness. And there's no doubt that he's telling them to stop. But I want you to notice how he tells them to stop. And we're going to get to the second turn today. He gives them a really big why. 
And I need you to lean in with me because it's not a why that you see coming. Pick up in verse two. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? (laughs) And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're gonna judge angels? Then how much more then should we be able to handle matters pertaining to this life? So why should you not hand one another over to public opinion? Why should you not participate in the outrage culture? Not only does it compromise the precious unity of the church, you shouldn't do it. Not only does it short circuit the witness of the church and publicly air dirty laundry, you shouldn't do it. Not only because it slanders and destroys real people and reputations, which in many cases are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, which you shouldn't do it. You should not do it for all those reasons. But the primary reason Paul names here is you shouldn't hand one another over to an outrage culture because you're gonna judge the world. You realize that. You're gonna judge even angels. This is, this is where we're headed. <laughs> he says, and if this is where we're headed, then how much more should we be able to peacefully handle the plumbing bill? How much more should we be able to peacefully handle being double charged for a croissant that you actually found out was just how much it costs one time? then how much more should you be able to handle the hurtful comment made by that person at community group? So he says two times in this passage, do you not know that you're gonna judge the world? Do you not know that you're gonna judge angels as though that's common Christian knowledge? And you wanna say, no, Paul, I actually didn't know that. I actually, he says it twice. So once again, here's what Paul's doing. He's not just telling them stop it. He's using our future hope and our reality in Christ to teach us about how we ought to be in the present. If this is where we're headed, then this is how we should be. Now, let's get busy now with what we'll be doing for eternity. And so what does he mean here that you're gonna judge the world? (laughs) You're gonna judge angels. Well, we don't exactly know, right? Here's what I mean. the particulars of that, like what does it look like, what's, what, what's it gonna look like and how's it gonna go down that I'm gonna judge an angel or a fallen angel or what kind of angel is it? Or the world or people or systems. What, what, we don't exactly know. Some scholars like to speculate, but the Bible isn't exactly clear. But I want, you to, I want you to sort of peer in with me because it's not as though the Bible's entirely unclear. There's, there's a lot of clarity about this. What we do know, and this is, just hard to even say out loud, I say it with trembling. What we do know is that the Bible says that in some way we will be sitting there with Jesus at judgment and participating with him. So many Christians think about judgment as something to be afraid of. The scriptures tell you that you, believing in Jesus, have passed out of judgment. Judgment's not yours. Judgment has fallen on him. And now what's happening, because you've moved from death to life and with Jesus, you don't come into judgment. You will sit there with him in judgment. It's different. You say, give me some biblical evidence. Luke chapter 22. He says this to the 12 disciples. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And so I'm gonna assign to you, as my Father has assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink and be at my table, uh, sorry, uh, eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
That's interesting. You're saying, well, that's just to the disciples. But then it carries out to the whole church. Revelation chapter two, this is a message to the whole church. To the one who conquers, which is staying with Jesus through this life, finishing in Jesus. To the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Notice what he says, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So the same authority that Jesus has received from the Father, he now shares with his church to join with him in ruling over the nations in the new heavens and new earth. Again in Revelation chapter three, to the one who conquers, this is, guys, this is crazy. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. (laughs) It's almost like, surely that can't be in the Bible. Read that again, right? I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Did you not know that you'll judge the world? You'll judge even angels. We could keep reading about this kind of stuff, Romans chapter eight, 2 Timothy chapter two, you can do that on your own. But the idea is that if God is able to do the kind of work in us to get us to sit there with Jesus, then surely he's able to give us whatever we need to handle our disputes down here. That's the logic Paul's driving at. Here's what's fascinating. What Paul's doing is he's giving us a wide angle lens of our hope in Jesus and just how far his blessings flow to those who look to him. So that the gospel of Jesus, track with this, the gospel of Jesus is not just, he died for my sins back there. The gospel of Jesus in the New Testament is actually union with Jesus. It's actually attachment to Jesus. The New Testament speaks about the status of a Christian repeatedly by referring to us as in Christ. In the same way that a body is attached to a head, in the same way that a groom is attached to a bride, such that whatever belongs to him, he now shares entirely with us. You realize, Christian, you are way more provided for than you ever imagined. You are way more covered than you ever imagined. God has thoughts about you that far exceed just forgiving your sins. They include attaching you to Jesus to sit with him in judgment of the world one day. Good night. This is why Paul can say like he did a few weeks ago in chapter three, you might remember this from a couple of weeks. He says in chapter three, why are you dividing over Paul or Apollos or Cephas, these preachers? The world, life, death, the present, the future, all these things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is of God's. It all belongs to you because you belong to Jesus. And so please hear me, right? The good news of Jesus is not just that he did something for you 2,000 years ago. The good news of Jesus is that, plus where he's taking you, that he's filled you with his spirit, that he's forming you right here and now. And when you see the panorama of attachment to Jesus and all that comes with it, Paul's logic here is it it actually frees you up from the need to be right. I don't have to be right. I don't have to win all my arguments, why? Because God's declared me eternally right in Christ. So I'm free to lose in some ways. Union with Jesus means that you don't have to look to the system of your day to vindicate you. 
as though the system, politics or judicial, was ever our hope in the first place. Union with Jesus means that you can take what feels like losses now. You can, you can actually lose now because nothing in him can be taken away from you. All things are yours. You're a future judge of the world and angel, so you can, you can pray for political leaders that you disagree with. You can love your enemies. You can pray for those who persecute you. You can let your yes be yes and be a person of integrity because you'll stand in the presence of truth himself forever. So it ought to change your attachment to Jesus. He doesn't just throw out this big theological bomb to like go, wow, isn't that an amazing thing to think about? He throws it out there to tell you who you are and where you're headed, that that might form you in the present. Hey, I've got to hurry on this last piece here, but he gives us in the final a way of reconciliation. Pick up with me in, chapter, in verse seven. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You're already losing. It would be better for you to suffer wrong or to be defrauded, but what's actually happening is you now become the wrongdoer and the defrauder, and you do that against your own brothers. And so what does it mean, to begin with our, our question from the beginning, what does it mean for the city to have the church? It means that the city would have a people living in it who would practice a way of forgiveness and reconciliation and be a testimony to it. Maybe to say something really shocking but simple. <laughs> the way of Jesus in reconciliation is you don't respond to drama with more drama. That's really simple, but it's like, dude, that's profound in this moment. You don't respond to drama with more drama. He never did that, and neither should we as his people. In a world that loves to cancel other people, and in many cases just upon hearsay and apart from relationship, what an amazing witness would it be for a people like us who are wronged to actually go to the other person and deal with it? <laughs> that's novel. What if we didn't assume motives and just believe the worst about another person? but just went to them. What if we actually sought, this is crazy, what if we actually sought to have relationships restored? Like what you actually want is not to stay mad at that person, but to actually not be. And what you actually want is not to resort to fireworks on social media or just avoid that person altogether, but to actually initiate and reconcile. Here's a verse that you would assume <laughs> you might not think is in the Bible and it might just make you uncomfortable, but I'm gonna read it because I think it ought to be read. In Luke 17, he says this, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, let him know. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, like, am I, am I reading this right? If he repents you second times in the day, seven times in the day and then turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Well, that's a level that I wasn't ready to sign up for. But there it is. Matthew 18 outlines something similar in more detail and it highlights the need to maybe tap in others for mediation if necessary. You see, in our world, it's just easier to avoid conflict and abandon. And we do this in the church because we just have like, well, if something goes wrong in this church, I love this church until something goes wrong. And then we just have a next church down the road mentality. There's plenty in Oklahoma City. Frontline's one of many. I'll be here until you do something wrong to me and then I'll leave. But what about, Paul's saying, what about addressing it? And what if the first thing you sought to do was to stay? 
The reason that people, the reason that people are so amazed by marriages of 60 years is because that you know that in those marriages, there was lots of wrong done, there was lots of forgiveness offered, and they still stayed together. And you look at that and marvel. But you go, that's what God is like with his people. No wonder it's beautiful. So I know that whenever we talk about this, some of you are saying, well, you don't know my situation, and that person doesn't really deserve to be forgiven. Or are you telling me to go back into a toxic situation? Are you telling me I should just let people walk all over me? Is that what you're saying? I'm actually not saying any of that. I get that there would be some nuance to different situations. And the wisdom given to all of us for our situations that feel sticky or above our pay grade is to tap in church leaders. And, and not that you would tap us in so that you can gossip about it, but that you would tap us in to find out what would a way of reconciliation actually look like, and in some cases, let us assist in being mediators, helping the conversation along. What I do know is that if you're trying to wiggle out of a conflict, there's good evidence that you need to deal with something, and maybe most importantly, in your own heart. I just, I just when I say this about what does it mean for the city to have the church. I just wonder what it would mean, what would it mean for you, what would it mean for me, if I didn't just follow my impulses, but I actually obeyed God's word about this? What would it mean for our city if they witnessed a group of people who didn't just blast, but they obeyed Jesus? What would it mean for you? What would it mean for the city? So here's the finish. I I don't know a lot about your situation, And I don't know a lot about maybe the the particulars of the wrongs done to you, but here's what I do know. I know that Jesus doesn't judge flippantly. I'm so glad he doesn't judge flippantly because he could have done it over me. He's the most offended party. He took on himself a judgment that was not his to bear, but mine to bear. And anyone who looks to Jesus are united to him in such a way that he will allow us to judge with him one day. And many of the wrongs that have happened to you and many who have wronged us have all received the same grace and they'll actually, here's what's crazy, they'll be sitting with you, with Jesus, in judging the world one day. You'll be united then. I wonder what it would be to get busy with that now. If that's where we're headed, if he's where we're headed, if his grace is what's taking there, taking us there, if he initiated with us and he's the most offended party, if he treated us with dignity and not drama and not slander, if he didn't avoid us or leave us because of the wrongs that we've done, if he hasn't done any of those things, then by the same grace that made us his, would we seek to be like him in the world? Let's pray together. Our Father, I'm so thankful that you take the scriptures and you lift up our minds to think bigger than we would ever think by ourselves. But you also take the scriptures and you engage our hearts in ways that we would probably not otherwise choose to be engaged. Father, what would it be? (laughs) Gosh, you are a firm foundation. You're the safest place to build our life. God, what if you helped us? I'm asking that you would help us to build how we respond to conflict on Jesus. Thank you for the way that you responded to us in our conflict against you. Thank you that you came to us 
and addressed us and then invited us. Would you teach us to be like that in the world? Would you teach us to abstain from the outrage culture and to participate in a redemption culture? We offer this prayer in Jesus' name, amen.